Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Hannah Asmosen, CEO and co-founder of Localize, an HR platform for talent mobility that's raised over $48 million in funding. Hannah, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, I'll try to be short, but my background is a bit of a weird mix. Um, I'm a former consultant, a former engineer, but uh, I would say engineer who doesn't like numbers and uh, consultant who doesn't like finance and very happy with the CEO position. I'm probably more of a product-focused CEO. That's my one passion topic, I'd say. And would 10-year-old Hannah be surprised that you ended up being CEO and co-founder of a company here? Or did you always think that could possibly happen someday? Oh, no, like 10-year-old Hannah thought that she'd probably be a, a veterinary or something like that because I grew up on a farm and I always loved animals. Oh, nice. Very cool. At what age did that become like something that seemed normal? You know, for you, was that like in college or when did you start to come around to this idea of, huh, yeah, maybe I could be a CEO. Maybe I could be a founder. I would rather say by chance that like my my friends would probably say that I realized that I'm basically unemployable and I couldn't work like under a boss. So like I had to I had to create my own job. But um, I think like really it was by chance because I loved the topic that we're working on so much that I wanted to build a company around it. And so it was not from the urge of like being a CEO, but like really rather from, uh, yeah, solving that, that big problem that we're tackling. Nice. That's amazing. And I know we're going to dive deeper into that here shortly, but a few quick questions that we'd like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So first one is what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Very big fan of, of Des, the founder of Intercom, because he's inspiring. Um, if you ever heard one of his talks, for example, a web summit that was a great one or like podcast that he's done, like he's very, very smart. I love the way he's thinking about product, um, customer focus, but also he's generally a very nice human. He's still very down to earth. So yeah, I would, I would probably name him. Nice. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? <laughs> Books are a tough one. Um, I have to admit, I love books, but I'm always sticking to thrillers, etc. Um, I'm not really of a like business book reader. There was one that I really enjoyed though, which was Patrick Lencioni, the like dysfunctions of a leadership team. What about thrillers? Give us a give us a book that maybe we haven't all heard of. What's a good thriller? Oh God, like I like the typical like Scandinavian, like Joe Nesper, etc. Um, Viveka Stain is a more recent one um, that I started reading, but I've been through all of them and uh, I've probably read most of them at least three times. Wow. Yeah, I have to say it's a genre I haven't really explored very much, but that's one of the fun parts of doing this podcast is I get to uncover a lot of new and different books that I normally wouldn't read. So yeah. excited to check those out. Now let's switch gears and let's dive deeper into Localize. So just to set us up here for context, can you just give us the elevator pitch? Let's talk about the problem you solve, who you're serving, and, and really what the product does. Yeah. Localizing helps companies to bring their employees across borders effectively. So um, we automate immigration lawyers. And then um, when a company wants to either hire someone from abroad, bring them to them, um, we really like, help with everything from 
the visa to finding housing, et cetera. Also support with business trips, so like really everything that comes with moving employees across borders. And when we talk about borders, are there specific countries that you're typically moving workers from to, or what does that look like? So we have like a lot of very typical channels. Of mm -hmm. course, like uh, people think like if you look at Europe, for example, a lot of engineers that come from Brazil, Nigeria, India. Then uh, if you look at the US, um, also a lot of like, engineering talent from Latin America. You also have now actually a lot of mobility from the US to Europe, like especially in tech, senior talent that gets hired by the growing tech scene in Europe. But I would say we, I don't like we had 80 or even like 85% of all countries is, yeah, countries like where people come from. So uh, even if there's, of course, predominant channels, you have a lot of diversity there. And are these always tech workers or what industry do they tend to fall in? We started with, I would say, 99% tech workers and then diversified over time. So right now we also have a lot of folks working in marketing, sales. And then over the last year, we also ventured out um, looking at the customer base and like venturing out from the tech scene. We now have customers like uh, Infineon, um, Roland Berger. So like going into consulting financial services, going into like even the car manufacturers, some of the bigger ones. And so there, of course, they also have like more diverse uh, talent. We look at blue collar workers now, um, start with, we look at healthcare. So um, really diversifying and expanding into that direction as well. And was that the master plan in the early days? Was it, hey, let's go start with tech, win with tech, and then expand out into all these different verticals and industries? I would love to say yes, but it's a no. <laughs> and um, I think like still right now, we have like four different expansion dimensions. So to say like one is geographical, so like venturing new countries. The other one is like going up market, selling to bigger customers. Then we have the different industries and then we have like a product expansion, new features. And so it's always like thinking about like, where do we see potential, but also what is our customer base re uh, requesting? Where, where do we see traction? And so like rather going step by step uh, and like growing the market, like in the different dimensions. But um, I also think like given the environment in the last years, like with COVID, now with the economic downturn, like you have to stay flexible in a sense, because also like during COVID, of course, a lot of things changed. Like now, for example, because tech is a bit more impacted, it has accelerated our transition into a more traditional customer segment. So I think like their expansion is something that will probably always be a bit more flexible on our side. Mm, interesting. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a shift that a lot of companies are going through right now, right? The startups that sold to other startups and other tech companies, now they're kind of being forced to expand out to the, I guess we could say like more stable industries or the, the more established industries. So makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk about your legal headaches. So I have to imagine with a business like this, it just involves a lot of compliance. There's a lot of legal aspects that probably have to be navigated and you probably have to deeply, deeply understand laws and all of these different countries that you're operating in. So what's that like, you know, for you as CEO? Like how are you managing all of that? And just how complex is this from a, a legal perspective when you have to comply with all these different laws? Yeah. So for every country um that we're going in, like we always need at least like one legal expert. Like also interesting there, for example, in Germany, you can actually do immigration support without being a lawyer. In the UK, you can also do that, but like you need to have a certificate, like you don't have to have a law degree, but so 
this is very unique. Um, also, what you're able to do, for example, and you really have to dive into like how does immigration work in a specific country, and then see okay, like who do I need to hire? Like what are in the UK, for example, like you need to have a license to operate, and so we almost always hire one person and then basically scale them via the software. But then like you really have to be careful on like what is possible and what not. The good thing is that there have always been traditional agencies like law firms, etc. So it's really about like digitizing the work that they do. And like instead of having 10 immigration lawyers in the US, for example, like having one and then scaling their workflows. So effectively they're like then you need to have the basics ones. But because it's workflow automation effectively, afterwards you don't need to do like that much extra work with like every new person that you hire. And then are there maybe legacy companies doing this or the legacy law firms that specialize in immigration that view you as like the disruptor and maybe a, a threat to the status quo and a threat to their business? Because it sounds like this could eventually or could currently be eating into their customer base and potential customers. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, really, um, in a lot of cases, we're up against, um, yeah, more traditional companies, immigration law firms, Fragman, etc. But also the big four, like, um, well, PwC now split out their global mobility practice, which is now called Vialto. And now we actually have customers where we are up against them, which is interesting. And like, we also had one case that was in, in Germany, if I remember correctly, where one immigration lawyer, like, we took away business from him. And then he tried to sue us. And so I think like they, of course, like you have some exposure, but we won the lawsuit. That was not such a difficult one because, of course, there is a bit of a gray area where we ha you have to be really careful. But as long as you also make sure like what is like, what do you offer? What do you not offer? I think like then when it really set the, that base for every country operate in, like the risk is very minimal. Yeah, I guess it's not always the rule, but it, it tends to be the rule that if you're you're getting lawsuits and getting sued by someone, then you must be making some moves and you know, making some noise and, and <laughs> causing some change. So that's probably a good indicator in this case, at least. Definitely. Now, take me back to the, the early days when the company was first starting. So where did this idea really come from? And what was it about this problem that made you and your co-founder or co-founder say, yep, this is it. Let's do it. It was a very long iteration, I have to say. So um, when I was 15, I moved to Argentina, spent a year there, went to school. And that really gave me that bug of, okay, I want to explore the world. And so I kept doing that. And even though I loved it, it was always a challenge. I moved to China, have to, to settle in, to find housing, to yeah, solve all the, the immigration challenges. And then, yeah, like same when I went to the US, I was in secondaries, I think like two or three times, which is like slightly scary. And so I think like that is really something where I thought, okay, this is a problem. Like more and more people want to move across borders. The world should be more open. And so we can support there. But then because I never worked in the tech sector and didn't have any access to it, the idea was first evolving around like, okay, like maybe a block that helps international students. And then we had different iterations there over the course of like, I would really say like five, six years until at some point when I... When I decided that I would not do the PhD that I started a month before and I had some time on my hands that I was like, hey, I have to do something with that. And then I knew both my co-founders before. They had also experienced the pain. Francie had the coverage on the tech side. Lisa knew the HR space. And so ultimately it all came together. 
But then I think it really kind of like then got its own rhythm. Like it just started gaining traction. Like we had this idea, we got great feedback, then we got the first customer. And then at some point it was like, okay, like we're really onto something there. So I would say like a bit of a more unique journey to becoming a founder. Mm, nice. Super interesting. I think every every founder has a unique journey, right? And a different journey into this. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, in the early days... I'm sure you've experienced this and every founder experiences this. It, it's hard to get paying customers and it, it's hard to land those first paying customers. So take us back to those first couple of big paying customers that you acquired. You don't have to, of course, you know, say names or anything like that, but how'd you pull it off? You know, how were you able to land those first paying customers? That's also a funny anecdote. The very first customer, we literally stumbled upon them. So like we, we hadn't even launched. We were at an event like HR Roadshow presented our plan, like hadn't even launched the software. And then someone approached us and said like, hey, look, I actually want to hire someone from India. And then I was just pointing to, to Lisa, to my co-founder and said like, she can do it because we effectively, what we did there is like automating Lisa's knowledge because she had done immigration cases in Germany. And so we said, okay, well, we'll try it out with him. And that I think that like, it also takes away a bit of the fear. Like then you have one customer and then the second one becomes easier and then the second one was an introduction through the network. And I remember back then we thought like, okay, wow, like this is actually a company that had maybe like 70, 80 employees. And well, so that was like more of a sales process already. And that was really exciting. And like we had just launched our product. And then I think like that went great. The third, what we thought would be our customer, we went, but then like, yeah, they had different requirements and then said no. And then like, that's something that like takes you back, makes you very sad, of course. <laughs> but then you go on to the next one and like then works again. So I, I do think the first customers, like it's really the, what YC always says, like do things that don't scale. Like you can probably like never put them into proper tiers. Maybe like at least half of them are not your ideal customer. Maybe they're too small, maybe they're too big. And so I think like there is just like the iteration that's important, but like even more important, to lose the fear and like to actually say, okay, I, I would just want to learn there. Amazing. I love that. And what about market category? So how do you think about your market category? Is this a category creation play or is it really just redefining and, and bringing technology to a category that sounds like it didn't really use a lot of technology before? I would say it's a mix of both. So on one hand, of course, you have you have the part about like we are up against immigration law firms, about against the the relocation agencies replacing them, which is of course like something that like where you replace them at like all the companies out there. But then there's also the category creation part because we have that like immigration piece at the core of the software, but then we also have a you can call it like a curated marketplace on top where we get housing partners and yeah, like mobile phone contract insurances, like all of that that you also need like when you're new to a country and also do things like a buddy system where we pair you with someone else like that's also moving to the same country. And so those are things where we actually also now develop a more consumerized 
app for people moving. I want to develop a whole platform there. And I do think that is something like where in the careers nowadays, it's very normal to spend time abroad. And like people are not just moving once. They want to explore 10 different countries over the course of their career. And so really like also helping people move from one country to another, make that like more recurring, make them integrate faster. I think like this is really the, the category creation aspect that we can also have. And just to understand the business model and where you're making money from, is it from the businesses that are paying this cost for the workers or is it the workers themselves paying it? Or is it a split of both depending on the use case? We effectively have three different revenue streams. We only do pure like B2B. We don't do B2C. Um, and then on the company side, we have a software fee, three different tiers, depending on like what features you use. On top of that, there's a usage-based component on like per every case that the company then adds. And then the third revenue stream is effectively the commissions that we get from partners um, from that marketplace component. Mm, that's super interesting. And what's the story to these customers? Is this like an ROI story? Is this a, a happier worker story? Like, what are you really like conveying as you're having these conversations with these companies? Definitely the latter. Like, we actually don't try and compete by price. Like, we're not that much cheaper than um, immigration law firm, et cetera, because we don't have to be. The talent is really important. And it's like such a crucial aspect that companies like also often like really don't want to save there. And it's more about the experience on one hand. It's also the fact that for HR, it's much easier to manage it. Like we give them the front end to like, see, these are the cases that are ongoing. Um, these are the tasks that you have to do versus an immigration law firm that either has like a very shitty software with like not so great usability or they just straight up send emails to your inbox. And that becomes very hard to keep track. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And what are your views when it comes to remote work? So we've had a, a number of big companies on the show like Remote.com and, and Oyster, and, and all of them are very much focused on this you know, remote work idea and hiring workers in other countries, but not having them move to the actual country. So what are your views there? And like, how do you just you know, navigate that conversation around remote work? It's a super interesting one because like, of course, a lot of the customers that we have, they still have some kind of like hybrid or in-person aspect, like where they have offices and they want to bring people uh, together in different hubs. But we also have companies that are fully remote. And the, the, the fact that we are building on is that there was one study that said 80% of millennials want to spend part of the career abroad. And so you'll always have people that either want to move somewhere or like already work outside of the country where they're from. And then they will need um, a new visa from time to time. They will need support. Um, and so this is the trend that we are building on. And Remote is a good example. Like we have a partnership with them. And yeah, like they're also a customer like on the immigration side. And so I do think like those topics go, go hand in hand. But then ultimately for us, if you think about playing the long term, we would be selling into someone like, Google five years time and then they are that big that even if like they allow remote work, I'm not sure exactly like where Google is at there at the moment, but they have their own entities in the countries where they have employees in and then they bring people in between and like then they do kind of like also the, the global mobility piece themselves. And like we are rather a horizontal layer across the whole employee base and like are in charge of everything like immigration and relocation related. Mm, got it. So it's like immigration as a service, essentially, to those companies. Exactly. Super interesting. 
And what type of growth are you seeing today? And have you seen over the last couple of years? And yeah, you don't have to share anything you're not comfortable with, but I would say our audience loves metrics. So what can you <laughs> tell us and, and tease us with some ideas of the growth that you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just like very roughly, like in terms of what on the customer side, we have around 500 customers at the moment. We've been growing quite a bit, um, like especially 21, 22, where explosive growth years. Uh, I can share the numbers from the last round. So I think like there at the Series B, we've grown like five or like up to six X compared to the Series A that was just a year before. What's really, really interesting overall, like if you look at our retention of the customer base, like you would expect that now, of course, that companies yeah, hire less and like move less, less people across borders. But we've always had like a local retention of 98% or so, like really low churn. And that, that has stayed the same. We are now like doing a shift in terms of uh, business model and pricing to get a higher share of, yeah, like upfront commitment and like basically more recurring revenue by selling flat fees, like grouping together the software, like the two first components of our pricing. And we've actually did quite a successful shift there. And like right now have already like more than a quarter of our customers on a fully recurring model, which is really interesting. And that plus like going up market is really something that work in, you can say, compared to an immigration law firm, we get a lot of predictability on the revenue side in an environment like that. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Super, super interesting. And as I'm sure you've seen, there's just a lot of noise in the market today. And it, it sounds like there's the established players for you. And then, you know, of course, there's some startups that have tossed their hat into the ring and are also probably making a lot of noise. So what have you gotten right? You know, how have you risen above that noise? And, and what do you attribute to that outstanding growth that you've seen? That's a very good question. I would say, on one hand, we've just survived. Like we've, uh, we've been super resilient. Um, during COVID, a lot of people thought we would die. Like they, they literally thought, okay, like doing, doing immigration when borders are closed is like not the smartest thing to do. But we really believed in, in what we do and really knew that the market would come back, which it did ultimately. And so I think like there, we just have an incredible belief in the market. Um, the whole team is super mission driven. Like we've all experienced immigration and relocation ourselves and really want to solve the problem. And so I think like that just gives you that drive to also persist in the, in the hard times. I do think like for founders that just found like something for the sake of founding have a harder time, like especially when, when shit hits the fan, I would say. <laughs> and so I think like that, like plus really a very unique understanding of the challenge that we're solving. Very much empathy for the people moving and like in a world where HR becomes more and more people centric, this is what actually counts. Yeah. And you know, that's something that I've heard in a number of the podcast interviews that I've done so far. They've said survival. Uh, now, like that's you know, kind of a funny answer, but it just makes sense. Like if you can just survive the the painful parts of the journey of building a company, then you at least you know, live another day to be able to adapt and make changes and and continue to grow. So I think that's super interesting. And you know, I totally agree too on you know, really being obsessed with the problem how another founder talked about it who's recently on the show said that there's a big difference between a mercenary and a missionary yeah. entrepreneur. And when you know, times get tough, it's very clear which of those two camps that you fall within. And it sounds like you're very much on the missionary side and that you're mission driven and you really believe in solving this problem and tackling this problem. So that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now let's talk about challenges. So if you had to pick one go-to-market challenge that you faced so far and overcame, what's that challenge and how'd you overcome it? <laughs> I would really say a complete lack of knowledge of like how to build a go-to-market function. I was lucky to have a co-founder, Lisa, who's incredible at selling. At the Series B, we had a lot of revenue and like only basically like her and two AEs. And so from that moment on, like we knew that that wasn't scalable and like that we actually like we needed we needed more knowledge. And so we've always been like outbound driven. 90, 95% of our revenue is like complete outbound. But we didn't even know about the difference between like outbound and inbound. Like for us, it was natural because like we've always like we never had marketing. We just started building it now. We have someone incredible on the team who's doing an amazing job there. But like we've just sold and like, we talked to customers, we've sold. But then when we started hiring SDRs, then we actually realized like, hey, there's like some SDRs that are accustomed to like only doing inbound. Like they get leads and then they 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 qualify them. But um, for us, it was different. And so like we made a lot of mistakes there. So yeah, I would really say that big challenge is like trying to build a go-to-market function without like building on knowledge down on like what you've seen at other companies. Yeah, and I'm sure you're not the first founder to experience a couple of go-to-market challenges. So that uh, that also makes sense. Now, let's reflect on your journey of company building so far. If you reflect on it, what would you say is the number one piece of advice you'd have for yourself if you were just starting this company again today? I think like, that would, like, we could basically cut off the whole first year because it was just trying to like figure out like how to build product. And I think like that is something where there's a big clash between the German mentality and the US mentality. Like when we got into Y Combinator, people just started selling like without having any kind of product. And we really tried to like build something first and figure that out. And yeah, that really cost us a lot of time. Hmm. Interesting. And final question here for you. Let's zoom out into the future. So three, five years from today, what's the vision? Paint an exciting picture for us of what this future is going to look like. We, we always have, we always talk about our, our BHAG, like our big, hairy, audacious goal. And that is to, to bring 100 million people across borders by 2030. That's a lot of people I know, but like, um, I do think it's such an exciting world. Like there, there are so many people like moving across borders in the, in the world that we live in. And I do think we're in a unique position. So yeah, that's like always what we are sharing with the team as well. Amazing. I love it. All right, Hannah, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Definitely LinkedIn. I, I'm still trying to up my Twitter game, but I'm not uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not good there. And like, I'm also very much like not good on Instagram. So I think like LinkedIn is the, the place to be. And then if anyone wants to teach me how to up my Twitter game, I'm always happy, happy to get some lessons there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story and, and sharing some of those lessons that you've learned along the way and really just educating us on what you're building. I thought it was a really fun conversation and I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience did as well. So thank you so much for taking the time, especially given that it's late in the evening on a Friday night. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, likewise, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 